Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Onco Farm, ETSU's Bill Gadd College of Pharmacy. Today is uh, May 25th, last uh, last uh, Thursday before uh, the Memorial Day weekend here in the States. And we're talking about the new approval for Epcoritamab. Epcoritamab? Epcoritamab. Uh, brand name Epkinley. Um, this is an accelerated approval that went through by the FDA on May 19th. Lots to talk about with this agent. So it is a bispecific T-cell engager targeting um, or bringing together CD20 and CD3. So I've used this analogy before, but imagine, um, unless you're riding a bike right now, if you stand up tall, put your hands over your head, stretching um, kind of at a 45-degree angle towards the sky, uh, away from the away from the sky, uh, your left hand, imagine that is CD20, and imagine your right hand, uh, or is a, sorry, your left hand um, is a, the end of an antibody that binds CD20. Your right hand is the end of an antibody that binds CD3, and if you cut your hands off and then connect the wrist together, that's what this, this molecule would look like, is it is going to have one hand that binds to CD20 on the B cells, malignant B cells, and one that binds to CD3 on the T cell receptor and brings our cytotoxic T cells in close proximity with uh, with B cells, including those that are malignant. And this approval is for relapsed refractory diffuse large B cell lymphoma, not otherwise specified. So that means any diffuse large B cell lymphoma, it could be uh, follicular lymphoma that is transformed to DLBCL, it could be uh, not specified high grade B cell lymphoma. Uh, after two or more prior lines of treatment, so those two lines would be first line chemoimmunotherapy and then could be either autotransplant uh, could be CAR-T, that would be the, the approval. And we'll talk a little bit more about this patient population in this study uh, a bit later. But there's first let's talk about the, the bispecific antibody. There are four bispecific antibodies on the market. Pretty sure uh, blenitumab, which is CD19, CD3. Um, CD19, pretty similar to CD20 in spectrum of activity. Blenitumab is, is for ALL. Um, that's IV, continuous infusion. You have... Uh, Mosunutuzumab, which is CD20, CD3 bispecific, so the most similar to this, but it is IV, whereas epcortimab is subcutaneous, and Mosunutuzumab's indication uh, is for follicular lymphoma. Then we have uh, Tibentafuse, which is for um, HLA-A restricted star 0201, uh, GP100 uh, to CD3, so that's for melanoma, and then Teclistimab, which is BCMA, CD3, which is for Multiple so this is the first subcutaneous uh, B-cell targeting bispecific. Now, the administration is subcutaneous. Uh, this is how that dosing schedule works. Sub-Q, cycle one, day one, you get 0.16 milligrams. Day eight, 0.8 milligrams, so double the dose then. Um, uh, or not double the dose, but quite a bit higher dose, okay? Uh, day 15, 48 milligrams. That's the full dose. And on that day 15, so that third week, your third dose when you start this agent, you need to be hospitalized for at least 24 hours. And then day 22, a week later, you get 48 milligrams. Okay. So there's a slow ramp up during cycle one. We start with a teeny, teeny, tiny dose, and then you just get a teeny dose a week later, full dose week three in the hospital, full dose week four potentially as an outpatient. And then cycles two and three, with a cycle being 28 days, is weekly. Um, and then cycles four through nine is every other week, and then cycles 10 on is one dose every 28 days. Now, for those pharmacists out there, the vial size for this, there are two vial sizes. There's a full dose vial, which is 48 milligrams and 0.8 ml. You just draw it out, give it sub-Q. 
For the lower doses, for our first two doses, the first dose is 0.16 milligrams, second dose is 0.8 a week later, there is a four milligram vial um, that is in 0.8 mil. It's like, well, how are we gonna give four milligrams in 0.8 mil? You have to dilute it uh, in, uh, to make five mil, then dilute that again to make 10 mil, and then you give one mil of that, and that is 0.16 milligrams. This is stored in the refrigerator, so for patients coming in, um, usually for a drug like this, I don't know what's gonna cost, but it will not be cheap. You wanna wait till the patient gets there so you know that they're not a no-show. Then you take it out of the fridge. The, the packager says to let it come to room temperature for an hour. Uh, and then you do your double dilution for the first dose. So this patient's gonna be sitting there for a while. Uh, now during that time, is that, and that's somewhat maybe fortunate for that first dose because we do have some pre-medications required. Uh, prednisone or prednisolone, 100 milligrams, or DEX 15 milligrams, PO or IV, DEX 15, um, PO, not a dose that comes uh, rolling off the tongue, uh, and no, along with diphenhydramine, 50 milligrams, and acetaminophen, 650 to 1,000 milligrams, given 30 to 120 minutes before the dose. So you come in an hour before, as soon as you get in, get the pre-meds, they're in at least an hour before that first dose. Um, the uh, PI also mandates... Uh, pneumocystis gervicii, or PJP, used to be called PCP, prophylax, and says consider herpes virus pro, um, uh, prophylaxis. So if you're, if, you're, if you're giving PJP prophylaxis, you're probably giving uh, your, your valet cyclovir or similar as well. From a safety standpoint, we have two box warnings. You could guess that they are for cytokine release syndrome and ICANS, the neurotoxicity uh, that you see with CAR-T and with bispecifics. Uh, the CRS much more common at 51% compared to the neurotoxicity at 6%. Uh, grade 3 or worse CRS uh, was only 2.5%, so not that severe, um, uh, or not that frequent that severity. Uh, and recurrent cytokine release syndrome happened in 16%. Now, this slowly dose ramp up is to mitigate the, the uh, cytokine release syndrome. So after that first dose of 0.16 milligrams, 9% had cytokine release syndrome. And again, they potentially are getting this subcute in clinic as an outpatient. A week later, the 0.8 milligrams, 16% had CRS, and that third dose, the one we were hospitalized uh, for 24 hours, 61% had CRS, so you can see why they had to be um, they had to be hospitalized. And then 6% for the last uh, dose of cycle one on day 22, so it goes back down after you presumably do a lot of debulking after that third dose. Uh, there were serious infections in 14%, um, uh, about a third had a grade three or worse neutropenia, 12% a grade three or worse uh, thrombocytopenia, and 77% had a grade three or worse lymphopenia. Again, CD20 is on the, the lymphoma cells, but also on all the healthy B cells, so not surprising that you're gonna have a lot of lymphopenia, hence the PJP prophylaxis and, and herpes virus prophylaxis. There's also a warning uh, for embryofetal toxicity risk as well as you might expect. I'm going to go over some, some PK, some pharmacokinetic considerations here. Um, the time to maximum concentration after the first full dose, so that, that day 15, the first time you get the full dose, 48 milligrams, was four days. So just because someone is hospitalized for 24 hours and they, and they do okay doesn't mean they're out of the woods because there's still a couple days until that concentration peaks. Um, this has a half-life of 22 days. Uh, it's unclear. I haven't seen any concentration time profiles, uh, what that looks like. Presumably, that's very low levels for a long time. Otherwise, you're given a weekly dose of this. These patients are getting a weekly dose for 10 straight weeks. 
uh, following the last dose of cycle uh, two, um, or the last dose of cycle one, then every week for cycles two and three, then the first dose uh, in cycle four. That's going to be 10 straight weeks of getting this agent um, with a 22-day half-life. And this, you can see the correlation of this in the, uh, in the um, average concentrations by time. So after that first 48 milligram dose on, um, on week three, the average concentration is 1.6. Uh, for the weekly dosing, by the end of cycle three, that average uh, concentration is 9.9. .9. And units here don't matter because they're all the same units here, okay? Now, for after the end of cycle nine, the every two-week regimen, that concentration, it goes from about 10 to 5.6. And then with the every four-week, the concentration is only 2.7. So you can see you're really, you're ramping up slowly the concentration to mitigate the risk of cytokine release. And then you're just blasting this drug in every week um, the cynic says that's because they're less likely to progress early because you're not going to do a scan for three months and you're doing, well, let's, let's get as much dose as we can in in the first three cycles, which is three months before we do the three weeks, the three month scan to see if there's progression. Um, that's the cynic as we're trying to maximize uh, drug use and therefore, uh, and therefore drug um, revenue. Could also be that that's what's uh, most effective to give it as much as possible and then that's when you're going to see your response and there's a maintenance then afterwards. don't know if that's true. It's still pretty early as this is uh, only approved on accelerated approval. The other thing I want to point out here from a pharmacodynamic standpoint is this is very easy, right? It's a one-size-fits-all dosing, okay? Um, so for those folks who are below 65 kilograms um, compared to those who are 65 to 85 kilograms, that's the normal body weight group they describe, uh, in the PI. For those under 65 kilograms, they had a 37% higher average concentration than those with the normal body weight range. 75 plus or minus 10 kilos is I'm calling normal body weight. And for those that were uh, larger, the 85 to 144 kilogram cohort, they had a 13% lower average concentration. So we have uh, this label mandated dosing schedule where you're giving lots and lots of drug uh, for, you know, for 10 straight weeks and then you back off. Uh, and I think that's important because let's say you have, say, a partial response after cycle three. It seems maybe unlikely, although I don't know this, unlikely that then decreasing the dose is going to lead to a complete response. And that may be important to think about is as we decrease the dose, um, you know, we, we may lose efficacy at, at that point if we haven't achieved it already. Um, uh, likewise, uh, those folks who are, are, are very uh, small uh, are, are probably going to be I would guess at greater risk for toxicity. And those who are very large are probably going to have less, uh, maybe a little bit lower risk of, uh, or lower likelihood of this drug working. Speaking of working, this um, uh, was, um, I guess the name of the study is Epcor for uh, Epcortimab. Uh, by the way, Epkinley, not the worst brand name for a drug here. Um, the, this, these results were published in JCM, and that's 157 patient cohort. I guess if you take out the five who had grade three follicular and the four patient on that study with mediastinal B-cell lymphoma, you get to the 140, 148 patient uh, in that is in the PI and the label. I'm talking mostly about the publication here, but you have a, um, you know, an overall response rate north of 60%, which is pretty good in a heavily pretreated population. Complete response rate of 38%, which is really good. Um, you know, these patients if you look at the publication, this includes the nine pages not included in the approval with uh, grade three follicular and primary mediastinal. 
Um, you know, 40%, 39% had four or more lines of anti-lymphoma therapy. 60% had primary refractory disease, including 83 refractory to the last therapy. Um, only 20% had prior auto transplant, which makes me think these patients could not tolerate an auto. Uh, and if you look at the age here, 49%, 50% of patients in the study are 65 and older. So it is a, 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 an older patient population than you expect to see in accelerated approval for a bispecific. Um, um, so 20% had auto transplant in the past, 39% had prior CAR-T. Uh, so you, you are seeing some pretty impressive responses here. Uh, and if you look at our subgroup, you see, uh, I guess really what you would expect is there's a kind of a clear um, marginal decrease in response rate uh, if you go from two to three to four lines of therapy, 65% to 64% to 61%, pretty modest. If you had primary refractory disease, um, your your uh, your response rate was um, was lower. It was 60% compared to 70% if you didn't have uh, primary refractory disease. Probably most uh, this, the most striking difference here is if you had a refractory to your last CD20 therapy, your response rate was about 57%, pretty close to the 60%. But that's the large majority of these of these patients were refractory to CD20. If you were just relapsed after CD20, you weren't refractory. All those patients had a response. Um, so um, there is uh, some pretty clear, um, uh, I guess, demarcation here of who is likely to respond, those who, who relapsed rather than were refractory to the last CD20 therapy. Uh, but again, uh, we don't have um, a, um, a, a confirmatory study, which uh, should be required to keep this drug on the market. Um, it is, uh, is sub-Q, so it doesn't allow for outpatient administration, which would be happy uh, or be good for, for um uh, likely patient satisfaction and, and administrators, but there are going to have to be uh, some busy, uh, you know, navigators and phone calls and education for these folks to be checking their temperature to look for fever as, as maybe the first kind, the first sign of cytokine release syndrome and and how to manage that. Um, when you look at the median time when this happens, this to me seems to be a Monday drug in clinic, not a Thursday or Friday drug in clinic when stuff could hit the fan over the weekend. On Saturday or Sunday, um, you know we think about that with our new start myeloma patients. Uh, if we have you know those folks that we're doing cyborg in the hospital, um, you know we, we we treat when we need to, but if we can, we like to line up uh, our our Velcade doses with the one four eight eleven so it aligns on a on say a Friday Monday dosing schedule. So for for epcortimab, it seems like a Monday start makes the most sense for patient safety uh, in that ramp up. Uh, unless you have a very active clinical presence uh, in the hospital and clinics on uh, nights and, and Saturdays and Sundays, which is not the case in most community centers. So that is what I have for this week on uh, Epcortimab, uh, Epkinley. Thank you for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDetanib, and you can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Mm-hmm.